This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Listeners, and welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. I, as always, am Glenn Butler, and we are doing Stranger Things 2 this week. Because this is the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where we think with vodka. <laughs> Joining me to look at the second season of Stranger Things, as always, is Alana Kelly. Alana, what have you found to be the greatest paddles on your curiosity voyage. Oh my god. <laughs> I love Dustin so much. <laughs> like if you're, if you're gonna steal things from the library, you should definitely do it an incredibly unique catchphrase, so it makes it really hard to to catch you, said no one ever. Um he's he's just so he's so wonderful. Um paddles on my curiosity voyage, honestly, one of them is Wikipedia. <laughs> and probably another one legit is Netflix. Fair. Fair. That is absolutely yeah. fair. Okay, so we are here to talk about Stranger Things 2. They're not calling it Season 2 for some reason I do not understand, but whatever. There's leaning into their sequel thing. Also, I think they might be done, you know? I think they might be done. Done how? What do you mean? Like, I think... I, I feel like maybe their story is over? Maybe? Oh, Did you I, get that feeling? I doubt that. I did not get that feeling. Did I give a spoiler warning I, at the beginning of this? <laughs> maybe not. We can go ahead and spoil it. Okay, let's let, let's move right into spoilers if, if we're going to talk about uh, whether the story's continuing or not. Mm. I, I definitely think that um, unlike season one, which ended with a lot of distinct teases for new character dynamics and different things heading into season two... Uh, season 2 at its end doesn't have that uh, quite as much, but it does have that extremely foreboding shot of the Mind Flayer right at the end, kind of looming over yes. the um, Upside Down school. Yes, I mean, the Upside Down definitely exists, but, you know, Eleven closed the portal. Well, like, at the end of Season 1, the portal's still open, and at the end of season two, or I'm sorry, Stranger Things to the sequel, uh, the portal, the portal is shut. I don't know. I guess we'll see. They, they, they definitely could make more content for sure. They have plenty of stuff to do with relationships and some other stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and I'm sure that whatever you know, whatever portal can be closed can be opened again, or or they can find another portal or or whatever. I mean, you can handle that easily enough. Also, I mean, there's enough uh, remnants hanging around anyway. True, like where are children 1 through 7 and 9 and 10? Yes. <laughs> where are they now? That's, uh, that's my lingering question coming out of Stranger Things 2 for sure. And there was also the the really weird tease that I didn't see coming about uh, Papa maybe being alive. Oh, yeah. W what did you think of that whole uh, thing that got thrown in there? I think that the guy that they were threatening was going to tell them anything to get out of hot water. I feel like Eleven's knowledge was better than his about whether Papa is gone. 
or not. I kind of think Papa actually is gone, except as part of her ongoing PTSD flashbacks. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, let's, let's start there. Actually. Uh, we decided we would kind of go through, uh, how all of our favorite characters and yours, uh, are faring this season on the stranger things. Uh, so really when you're talking about stranger things, it begins and ends with 11, right? So yeah. let, let's, let's talk about what she's been through now. <laughs> oh, well, I, I just, I really like how they develop her because they do a, a marvelous tease bringing her back into the story because we, we see Hopper in the shack and he's like getting his beer and it's the end of the day and stuff and he's, he's talking to somebody off screen and she sits into the frame and it's so marvelous to see her. Um, there's like all these teases, right? Because like, he's like making a pop-up waffle and everything, but, um, you know, an ego. But it's just, it's so great to see her. Like, I just felt my body flooded with relief <laughs> to see her face. And then they do such great interwoven and layered storytelling on Stranger Things that they do a nice filling out of what happened to her immediately after like she she kind of disappeared into the upside down to keep off of mike at the end of stranger the original stranger things series and it's not it's, it's absolutely unclear what happened to her and then we get to we get to see what happened and she she was hiding in the woods alone trying to survive and being ruthless about it as we've seen her be before but it's this kind of thing where she's kind of circumstantially ruthless i, I have the same feeling about her here that i did in the first season that though she is capable of violence um, and destruction, it's it always comes from a defensive place. She's not she's not like experimentally cruel. She does what needs to get done, and she she was not she was never given a moral compass, so she she never hesitates. But it's not it's, th- it's the same thing as I felt before. It's not it's not coming from an evil place. It's utilitarian, which actually makes it scarier, <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, in a lot of ways, yeah. Um, and, and that's really something that she decides to, like, recommit herself to after her uh, adventure in the big city. Yes. Like, a few times during this season, she goes in search of the closest thing to family. You know, mm-hmm. she, she goes and searches for her mother, and yes. that turns out to be uh, extremely emotional, but is not an ending place for her. And then she goes and finds Kali and their whole gang in Chicago, which, again, is is a very emotional thing for her. And, and again, like, the closest thing she has to, like, a kindred spirit in a lot of ways, but it's not a permanent solution for her. And, And she has to decide, after all of these journeys, that where she belongs is with the friends she made along the way. Yeah, narratively, there's a call, like a reference to the Odyssey because what is she trying to do? She's trying to go home, and Hopper describes the shack as a home for her. Becky, the I think who I think is supposed to be her sister, maybe, um, possibly her aunt uh, who lives with with Terry, uh, says oh, that, that that's, that's her, aunt, her yeah. home. Yeah, her then describes that place where where Terry lives is as home, and then Kali describes where they're squatting, which looks like a warehouse, as home, and all of these things catch, like every time someone uses the word home for eleven, she like her, you can see she's emotionally caught by it, but they're they've all proven 
false. Uh, every home she's ever had has been false. The home with Pop was definitely false. The one with Hopper's not quite right either, although he's certainly trying as hard as he can. Uh, she's not meant to be with her mom anymore either, and she's not meant to be with Kali. They're all false. So interesting, interesting journey she's on, but a, a classical one. Oh yeah, absolutely. Even though one of the differences in pacing this season as compared to season one is that I think it's a lot less focused in some ways. Like season one is very focused on the journeys of a few characters. It's mm -hmm. it's highly focused on Joyce and yeah. on uh, Mike and Eleven and on... Jonathan Nancy, and Nancy and Jonathan and a lot of the other characters are were, were great and we, we, we talked about them in, in season one but they are not really the featured players and I think that got a lot more broad this season uh, with the effect that the story isn't about Eleven as much as it used to be but there's still a lot for her to do she's still going on this journey and she still has to come back to what we know is her actual home because this is what the TV show is about um, mm -hmm. in time to save everyone's lives. Yeah. They lead that, that they're a little D&D &D party in the first season. Like, they, they set it up that way, but they don't talk about it as overtly as they do this time where the boys, like, literally say who's in what role, including Eleven being their mage. It's just, I, I just like how they hinted at it and then confirmed it that that's like that was part of the inspiration because i feel like the duffer brothers are like serious tabletop gamers <laughs> like <laughs> really serious tabletop gamers probably and i like how they uh they're not you know they're not embarrassed yeah i'm pretty i'm pretty sure most everything in the show is built around what the duffer brothers did when they were kids <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, this season, yep. this season, they decided, hey, we went to the arcade a lot too. Yeah, that was a nice set piece, and like all the all the extras and other small players are just fucking on point always. Like they look perfect and sound perfect, and it's just the world building um, is so wonderful. Both uh, pitch perfect America in 1984, and what a, the horror of the Upside Down. They're both fully realized, and the escapism is perfect. Well, there's a bit of there's a bit of um, symmetry, right? There's the creeping horror of the approaching uh, shadow monster, mind flare, whatever, and there's also all of the lawn signs for the 1984 election. Seriously, right? That was those were beautiful touches with with the different allegiances of each family. I was thinking about one of the reasons I love the show so much. I know we're not really doing a good job staying on our character agenda, but maybe we can return to it. But like this point I just wanted to make is I was thinking about why I love it so much. Cause I'm normally not really a horror girl. And this, this one isn't really something that's, I, I don't think it's truly horror in genre. It's probably more sci-fi, but one of the reasons that I love it is because obviously the concept of the upside down is 100% fantastical, but then why why is it so effective to have these creatures running around and all of the all of the visuals with how the sky looks and the the way that there's stuff floating around in the air like all of that stuff and it's because when we're not doing that we're so incredibly grounded and realistic not like the the acting is always right there it's not overacted the dialogue is really authentic. Like it, everything else is really, really grounded, authentic, and understated, and that that makes me 
it makes me capable of staying very present in the story even when it goes really wild. And I just I just love that as a piece of art. I'm never distracted by the artistic choices that are wild because the artistic choices that are very um, pedestrian are perfect. Does that make any sense? <laughs> uh, sure. Well, that's the purpose of, of everything else, is to ground you in this whole world before it all goes sideways. Right, literally. <laughs> Upside down, in fact. The, I, indeed. Even further. <laughs> yeah. Going back to Eleven for a, for a second, let's, let's talk about some of the characters who are kind of more in her orbit this season. Yeah. I haven't read a lot of reviews online, but... I feel like the reaction to Kali and the Chicago gang has been mixed. Uh, oh, interesting. What did you think of, of them and their... Uh... This goes to pacing a little bit, too. They're in the cold open in episode one, and then yes. they come back for their own episode, of which is very self-contained, uh, for this series at least. Mm -hmm. uh, what did you think about those characters and the way that they were used? Yeah, I thought it made, I made a hell of a cold open to know that there's mo there was more than one that uh, and and of course that's that's strongly suggested by her name being Eleven, but uh, but I, I loved seeing them in the cold open, even though I didn't understand who they were, and you only you only get a hint of who Eight is uh, at the very last second, and then we don't we don't hear from them, but we're hoping we'll see them again, of course, and I think I did start to put it together um, because. Eight looks maybe like maybe she's South Asian descent, and like we see the flashback that Terry provides of baby, you know, very small child, eleven, being in a room with a girl who is similar in coloring. And it's like okay, here we here here comes, and I was getting getting excited about that. And then we don't get much time with them, so they're not very flushed out. I didn't enjoy the teenage boy uh, threatening eleven with the switchblade. That was kind of a lot. But I kind of see why why was he doing that? It was fear of discovery for legit reasons. Like they think they they seem to have all like like Kali says they're all outcasts. Like the world has failed all these particular people that uh, Kali is hanging out with. And they did pull together tiny personalities, you know, as much as they're allowed to in the one hour that they're given out of the nine hour story. It was a nice chance to explore what seems like an obvious moral peril of being gifted, which is that you would you, you would use it in a in what we would in what you know the U.S. would call a criminal fashion, um, you know steal, stealing things and uh, making mischief. And then of course it turns out that they're they're doing a, a vendetta against everyone who wronged them. I think we can understand the wish to pay back, especially if they were receivers of cruelty and bullying, which I think they is led by. Kali's description of them all as outcasts. So I found I found their little story great, and I especially like how she, how Eleven decides it's not for her. I think she feels a, a very strong pull toward uh, toward Eight. They call each other sister. They seem truly bonded, and of course, Eight gives her very important coaching on how to use her power to its fullest, which is going to be important later. Eleven doesn't really fit in with them. I think she even. You know, they, they dress her differently and she's stomping around in a mask with them in that scene when they find the, the guy who was in the hospital uh, administering the, the the ECT to to Terry. They find that guy and, uh, and they're going to punish him. And she, she doesn't want to kill him, even though Kali really thinks that she should. 
it's interesting. It's, it's hard to, as an adolescent person, it's really hard to step back from friendship and especially someone as relationship starved as 11. Like I, she's very brave, but very definitive. And, and she seems to have really made up her mind when she says she's going to leave eight and go home. So I think it packed a lot into it. And I enjoyed that episode. Yeah, I really enjoyed that episode, too. It it signifies a lot of character growth for Eleven, I think. Because, uh, yeah, like you say, she's definitely. extremely relationship-starved, and she is searching for a relationship. She, she decides she can't have it with Hopper, and we'll talk more about their relationship in a couple minutes. Yeah. Uh, she finds that she can't really have it with her mother or her aunt. And then she finds this this sister and decides she can't have it with her either. And I think Kali is interesting as kind of an alternate route that Eleven could have taken in life. If, yes. she, if she didn't find friends in the way that she did. I mean, Kali has her friends. And I don't doubt that those are like actual relationships between them because they're all outcasts and they've banded together and all that. But it's a lot more adult uh, yeah. a situation obviously than 11 would be in as as a tween yeah. uh, it, it's it's a lot more cynical uh, and, and it is a lot more based in vengeance uh, when we talked about season one last year we talked a lot about how every character is responding to trauma in their own way and mm -hmm. in this season they're continuing to you know, some of them have the same traumas and some of them have new ones. <laughs> and yeah. one of the things that, that Eleven is finding in all of these aborted relationships that she's searching for is different ways of responding to trauma and trying to find the way that she's going to respond. There's uh, her mother in her semi-comatose, a rather tragic state. You know, there, there's the revenge that, that Kali subsists on. Uh, and, and it's trying to find a model of going forward that works for her in terms mm -hmm. of moving on from her trauma and trying to find stability in a way that she can live with, uh, as, as opposed to the uh, extremely, extremely restrictive arrangement that she has with Hopper at the beginning of the season. And, and let's talk about that a little bit, because uh, that is... A lot more emphasis on Hopper, I think, than there was in the first season. He was an interesting character, and he was a very well-portrayed character, but he was very much in the background uh, for several episodes. This year, he is uh, foregrounded a lot more, I think, and uh, I, I think the show really benefits from that, because he is a fascinating character in terms of his own responses to trauma and, and yeah. the, the ways that he tries to find stability by picking a point where things will stay and angrily insisting <laughs> that things will stay at this point. Uh, what, do yes. you, what, what do you think of, of the way that Hopper's developed this year? Oh, I just, I adore it. I just, I want to put a quick PS on Kali before we move on from her. Um, I, I, I liked the detail that we, we see in the files that Terry was keeping that, that the story about a missing young girl 
who you know looks like her. I think I think they say she's missing from from the UK. Maybe I don't. Is, is that said in the paper? Or did I make that up? Um, anyway, it, she's there, and uh, we see she's a couple years older. And what I thought was fascinating is that she, her language skills are so much more advanced than Eleven's are. Eleven can talk a lot more now than at the end of the previous season that she's been with Hopper for a while. But still, like her language is quite restricted. Uh, but the other girl, who I think was taken at a later date has much more language and I, I liked that detail yeah absolutely so sorry i just want, to, just want to shout that out but to get back to your question about what, what do i think of harbor in this season i think they developed the shit out of him in the first season at a very slow pace so it didn't seem like it was that much about him but i found him to be very powerful and central to my viewing experience and i i think i think the same thing this year but because it's it was so much more expansive um in the, in terms of story like there uh, there are many more storylines i think this time than there were before i don't actually feel it, that he's more in the show than he was but he's he's given more different types of things to do he's in like he's in police officer mode most of the time in season one and then he kind of comes out of it toward the end and th- this this time we actually see him in dad mode first we don't really see him at work as much um, and then we see him when he's actually in serious, serious trouble, when he's trapped in the tunnel. And then uh, we see him in like we, we see him in a lot of different ways. So maybe that maybe that's giving you the impression of, of hugeness in the story, um, which I think, yeah, you could definitely understand it like that. And I, I think at the end of this season, he's arrived at an interesting place where he's still acting as a as a surrogate father for Eleven, except now it's official and because of the experiences that he's gone through over the course of the season he's a lot more willing to understand her needs also he gets a second chance to be a dad like usually you lose that and it stays gone we learn that his daughter died at the end of season one and they he actually doesn't say that she died he says she's gone or no, she's she's not around. Like, I forget what he says, but he doesn't say that she's dead. And and Eleven says, says gone, like a question, and he says gone and confirms it. <laughs> and of course, his first response to being in charge of Eleven is to is to put her in lockdown, like he said, because she's at such risk, and he already lost someone. I think that's very natural. I think it's natural anyway as, as children approach adolescence to freak out that they're going to endanger themselves, but then she's a very, very special adolescent, and then he's trying to avoid the pain of the past also when he tries to c- control her so perfectly. And of course it blows up in his face. Of course it does. Um, oh, that... And I, I found their fight to be very... I, their fight was really great, actually, the way that they expressed anger at each other. That fight was an incredibly intense scene. It really was because I think when she started using her power against him, I think he was truly shocked about that, like really disturbed by it. And it is disturbing. And then like the way that he yells the rules, because, you know, they're so concrete, like it's just supposed to be these three things. But of course, like if they're (laughs) rules like that, you know, it sounds simple on paper, but it doesn't allow for any, yeah, it's it's basically just another type of jail. Um, which is what Kali calls it later. Like you can't, he says you can't even do that, which is just something that disappointed parents have been screaming at their children for <laughs> forever. But I just like, I, I just cringed when he said it 
because especially when a child is smart, like uh, something like that will devastate them and then create this huge feeling of resentment and opposition. And of course what she does is leave. Um, Like he doesn't succeed at all in getting her to follow the rules by yelling that at her. He gets, he in fact ensures that she'll break them, which is like such a classic parenting mistake. I'm like frantically taking notes because I have children myself, (laughs) but it's like, even though they're, they're yelling at each other, I still really felt it like his scrunched up angry face and there, you know, she's on the verge of like it, it was right there. And yeah, my heart was pounding. Yeah. It was just such uh, an intense combination of her needs coming out and, and his again, reactions to trauma. I think it would be hard for him to parent any child given his experiences with his biological daughter, uh, let alone one with superpowers. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how you really discipline a child anyway. I really don't know how you discipline a child with superpowers. Uh, and I'm, I'm worried for them both emotionally because they're both like, it's just so it's just so fraught. And then I like the development of their pairing is so great because I forget immediately what happens after the like she fight. He, he stalks off to work and they're they're away. They're away from each other for for a while. And then he at one point gets to to use the radio to try to explain that he's not he's not late because of the fight, um, and he's like he's just so uh, he's so sad that he, that or he's he's just he's he's worried and sad. And then what I found fascinating was when he when he got up in the tentacles in the tunnel, and he's obviously not going to be able to get back out again. I'm afraid for him and for her because he can't he keeps breaking promises to her over and over again and that's not going to be like her response to that is not going to be good for her so i'm like i'm worried for him body and soul and i'm also worried for her like it, it was just like that moment when the when the vines are creeping over him like in a different story i would only care about him i would forget about 11 but she's there anyway even though we're not talking about her or seeing her the impact on on this on her from that story uh, from him not being able to get home is just i was my heart was in my throat absolutely um right after their argument there's a moment where hopper is uh talking to her from the other side of the door and there's a moment where he almost softens and almost like tries to repair immediately and then goes right back into restrictive dad mode yeah. And and just sours the whole thing. Because mm-hmm. the last thing that Eleven needs at any point in time is anyone betraying trust. I know. Yeah. And then they um they that's them partnered again to to close the gate and they, they work beautifully together. And it's just like she she's the dangerous one. He, you know, he's the armed policeman, but she's she's the fucking dangerous one. Right. In that, and in that little pairing. And yeah, and, go ahead. and not even the the fact that they're the ones together at the gate at the end, but I am so glad that they got that scene together in the truck on the way when they actually yes. got to have an honest heart to heart and and work through a lot of the issues that have been worked up throughout the rest of the season to that point they both acknowledge their own stupidity and stubbornness in such a great way and then there's the little joke that he makes about them breaking the rules because his i think it's the third rule of the house is don't be stupid 
he makes that joke about the rule, but they don't say the rule again. Like they are, they talk to the audience as though we're smart and remember stuff. And I love that. They do that in a couple of different ways, but every time they make me reach for something, um, it just works beautifully. <laughs> so I'm really into it. Uh, all right. Since uh, we've been talking about Hopper, let's move into one of the new characters uh, this year. Uh, someone that yeah. appar- apparently Hopper has been talking to quite a lot in the interim. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Dr. Paul Reiser. Yes. Shout out to Paul Reiser, by the way. I hadn't seen him since Mad About You in, like, 1991, maybe. <laughs> um, I bet that I'm not alone in having entirely misjudged his character's motivations. Several times, in fact. Uh, yeah. More um, than once. Due to the baggage of uh, Dr. Brenner and all of, all of those secret government types from season one... And Paul Reiser's character from Aliens, which looms large over any sci-fi role he takes. I completely thought that he was another uh, scheming dirtbag, basically. And to see in in just the last couple of episodes, uh, when, when everything goes to shit at the lab, that actually it turns out he was okay. Yeah, uh, that, he was that, okay. That was, that was a big shock. Uh, for me, one one of the notes that I jotted down in the middle of the season was uh, something along the lines of, "Okay, obviously Paul Reiser is a sleazy bad guy, but what would it look like if someone with genuinely good motivations took over the creepy lab with the gaping hole to the upside down?" <laughs> and and yeah. it turns out he actually kind of did have his heart in the right place. Uh, what do you make? What do you make of that character? Did you think the same thing? I loved him, and yeah, they did do they did several gotchas actually. Yeah, because I just I felt I felt literally ill when he like ends his interview with Joyce and Will and like steps basically steps behind the curtain like the Wizard of Oz, and it turns out nothing is fine at all still. And I just feel this any anytime people lie to Joyce and dismiss her, I'm like my hackles are up. And he's not really he's not really dismissing her. He's giving her good counsel on what PTSD is, but Will didn't have PTSD. And I think the doctor knows that, so I'm pissed. Um, like, Will ha- actually, I should be more accurate. Will, Will does have PTSD, but that's not all he has. <laughs> he um, has other problems. How many characters on this show don't? Oh, that's, uh, that's good. That's good. And I like I like that they, they are not fighting Paul Reiser's Jewishness in any way. He gets to be the the you know the expert jewish doctor and i enjoyed seeing that character because i and i just i like paul reiser anyway so that that was good like they didn't then you know they didn't try to step on any his new york uh accent or anything even though they're in indiana like it, they just they did they just let him be like they brought like let's get paul reiser in here and they let him they let him be paul reiser which i was into story-wise his de- his decision to admit the truth to nancy and jonathan and let them go was so interesting and it was so baller that Nancy taped him talking, but it was like, it was so weird because it, it wasn't secure, right? Like that discussion wasn't secure if she got a tape of it. And like, there's so much weird electromagnetic shit around the gate and the creatures of the gate. Like I thought that that would make the tape not work. Like, it was so it was an interesting little story thing there, but it's in like it, holding, holding Nancy and Jonathan makes him seem evil, but then like telling them the truth and letting them go makes them seem fine like they, they just they swing back and forth a couple different times and then of course we we 
or at least at least I felt this way. He he clearly is going to go down with the ship when he sends them all out of there and says he'll watch the cameras. Like that's a suicidal thing to do. I think we can all recognize that, including him. And you know, any captain who goes down with the ship has my respect. Um, that's that's what I felt when I saw him do that. Even when he had Nancy and Jonathan there, I I was still convinced that he was evil, if only because he was still going on about the Russians. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that whole aspect of this is is not emphasized nearly as much as it was last season, because right. last last season it was more about using Eleven as an intelligence tool, whereas this season it was just, we fucked up and we have to find a way to deal with this. Yes. The oops, um, clean up on aisle five thing that they have to do about the gate. <laughs> Although, although of course, the other reference to the Russians this season is um, uh, the private investigators' speculation oh, that there's an all-out Russian invasion in Hawkins, Indiana. Right. The conspiracy theory thing. I like how Hopper is shutting him down and slant, like, he's just quit draining them dry. And I wonder who the hell he's talking about, but then it turns out he's the guy that the Holland family hired. I just it was another time when when um hopper is saying something without he doesn't hit us over the head with it like we they never finish the suggestion that he's a hack who's taking them for a ride but we have all we have that complete impression based on um hopper's brief comment and then seeing the hollands and we learn that they're selling their house and then we see that where he lives and he's fueled by vodka and like, he's not wrong, but he's also not, like, a professional private investigator, which is what he's told the Hollands he is. They're not like, oh, here is, here are the story. Like, here, here's what, here's this guy's deal, point A, point B, point C. We have to put it together through how they tell the story, which I, ju- I just adore it every time. Yeah, I did appreciate the way that Hopper casually shut him down. You get the impression that, uh, even if mm-hmm. not with this particular guy, that Hopper's been doing this, like, the whole year. Uh-huh, yeah, that they've talked more than once. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and that anyone else coming near it, you know, that dude, that dude who had his store door broken by 11, or, or anyone else who saw her that Hopper just, you know, casually shuts him down. Oh, that's, that's nonsense. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. The private investigator, I thought, was, was kind of interesting in the way that you can make a wacky conspiracy theorist interesting in a TV show where the wacky conspiracy theory is the main plot line. Right? Uh, yeah. And, and and it turns out that unlike in the real world, this shit actually is true. Ex- yes. Except then, right after he had all of his conspiracy theories confirmed, or at least more detailed, when, when Nancy and Jonathan went to see them... He started feeding teenagers alcohol and trying to get them to sleep together, which was kind of creepy. Uh-huh. That was a little bit creepy. It was a little bit creepy. I just like how the Stranger Things world, like, it's never Occam's razor. It's never, ever the simplest explanation. <laughs> well, how interesting um, would that TV show be? I suppose that's true. What what you were saying about the, the least likely explanations, it just... Um, but then the characters are so earnest... Um, it, it just makes me just briefly think about um, Dustin and his relationship with Dart. We can, we can get into that a little bit later. Uh, yes. Yeah, we can finish, finish out with this guy. He, he didn't have a huge role in, in this season. I'm glad to have seen the little extra bit with him right at the end in, in the sort of 
montage of where every everyone has wound up now when he's like mm-hmm. gleefully watching the lab get closed down. Yeah, that was that was nice, and they're all giving him the finger. <laughs> so yeah. so at, at least he gets some measure of satisfaction taking down the man. Yeah. Uh, but yes, we have uh, a lot more characters to talk about, a lot more plot to talk about. Uh, there's, uh, you mentioned Dustin and Dart, you mentioned Nancy and Jonathan, and their whole endealment. Uh, let's take a short break and listen to ads for the other podcasts on this fine podcast network we are on, and Woo-hoo. talk about all of that when we come back. consideration paid for by the following hey pro wrestling announcer kevin kelly here i want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at place to be nation it's really easy to do just head to itunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the place to be nation wrestling feed which of course includes the full archives of the kevin kelly show the place to be nation pod feed and the pro wrestling only feed Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. Place Simulations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaySimulation.com. And we offer those to you on three great feeds. On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the original Place to Be podcast, as well as main event to Lucha Afterground and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, as well as the Our Vantage Point podcast and Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver quick-hit pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Psychology is Dead, Puro Puri, Stacy and Elliot's Bogus Journey, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Letters from Center Stage, Space City, and NWA Classics on Demand Adventure, Through the Years, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, and much more. And on our popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, Go Home in a Box, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertible podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, Geek and Sassy, and Imaginary Stories Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including The Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to all of our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. 
all of these shows, plus others available on PlacementNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects, and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlacementNation.com backslash Amazon when shopping online, and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, TheHistoryWrestling.com, and Scott Keats Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlacementNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. are back. I am Glenn. That's Alana. We are talking about Stranger Things Season 2. We are going through a lot of the characters, see uh, where they've gone, where they've been, where they're going. Let's talk about the main things that I'm going to complain about. Alright? Okay. <laughs> if you know me, you know you know where I'm going, and that is the godforsaken love triangles. <laughs> Yay. Thankfully, we didn't get as much of both of them as we might have in an inferior show, but they still gotta be there. For some reason, everyone's gotta put them in every piece of fiction. <laughs> okay. Thinking back on it from both seasons of this show, the evolution of Steve Harrington, I think has been a wonderful thing to see cuz when yes. at the beginning of at the beginning of season 1 and even through a lot of season 1 he was an incredibly one note asshole jock character and then right at the end of season 1 it's like he flipped a switch and suddenly started to grow into a decent person yes uh when he actually helped save the day at the end and when the love triangle with uh, Steve and Jonathan and Nancy kind of fizzled at the end of season one. I thought it was an interesting choice to have Nancy stick with Steve, but because he had evolved, it wasn't out of nowhere. It's, it's, right. it's not like she decided to stay with her asshole boyfriend because the women like assholes is a thing that a lot of stories seem to think. Yeah, uh, it was deeper than that. Yeah, exactly. And so to bring back the whole love triangle this time, I think was more than a little gratuitous. I don't think uh, the actors playing Jonathan and Nancy have romantic chemistry. They have friendship chemistry. They have fine chemistry as actors. I don't think they have romantic chemistry. Oh, I do, but... Really? That's, that's okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I do. <laughs> not not to mention being shoved together creepily, uh, as I mentioned a few minutes ago by the private eye, uh, was yeah. uncomfortable. It was kind of uncomfortable for that guy to skip over the fact that they're minors. Although, maybe Steve is 18, but that doesn't matter. Or, I'm sorry, not Steve, Jonathan. Well, Jonathan, I'm, I'm, like, I'm, I'm not uh, well, sure, because they're juniors, aren't they? Are they? Yeah, Steve Harrington mentions at some point 
that uh, he's going to be off at college next year, but if he goes to a local school, he could be around for Nancy's senior year. Oh, okay. Yep, I, I recall that now. One way that I that I don't mind, although it'd be cool if it was slightly more original, but I, I don't mind because the boys don't actually argue with each other about her directly. Jonathan is like 100% respectful of the fact that that Nancy seems to want Steve. It's very clear that Jonathan is being respectful of Nancy rather, rather than being like rather than yielding to an alpha male, which is an, to me it's an important distinction. True. Um, he's not trying to nice guy her. Right, and he's also not trying to pursue Nancy romantically because he's afraid of getting in trouble with her boyfriend. He's he's not doing it because he's respecting her choice to be with someone else. And even though they get, you know, Nancy gets her palm read by the private eye who's like, yeah, but you don't like that guy. Uh, it, there, there's, there is definitely a thing that we do, especially when we're young, that we that we try to do what we think we're supposed to be doing or try to want what we think we're supposed to want. And I, that felt really real that, you know, she should want Steve from their shared history. And he was, you know, the man of the hour and he's very good looking and the whole thing. So she should like him. But what about this other thing? And I do feel that they had some passion, especially especially Jonathan liking Nancy and choosing not to pursue her. Like I, I felt that before, and I feel feel it again now. His crush on on her and his liking of her, and I like I like that the that um, Steve and Jonathan don't actually they're they're not they're not vying for her in front of us, which would distress me a lot because it's such a fucking uh, <laughs> misogynist trope. Yes. Um, so I don't, I don't really mind that one. I am really, really bothered by another love triangle, though, that I wonder if bothered you. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Uh, yes, but let's let's get to that in, in, in just a second. Um, I will say, to be fair, at least uh, the unraveling of the Nancy and Steve relationship, such as mm-hmm. it is, comes because of, again, responses to trauma. And Nancy still trying to deal with the whole situation with Barb and her parents and their ever more desperate search for Barb. So I do like that 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 through line is still there, at the very least. Right, that they don't forget. Actually, yeah, that's that's that is an important piece of the story. Because Barb seems slightly forgotten over the course of series one, and I like that. I liked that too, that Nancy's very upset actually about it. And we learned that it's about a year later um, where some, some people, especially in California where I live, talk about the veil being thin uh, on the, on the anniversary of things that uh, are emotionally impactful. And also, especially if they happen to take place toward the end of October, looking, (laughs) looking at you, robust pagan community in Northern California. Um, But, but yeah, like it's, the anniversary of the loss of her her friend i was kind of glad to see that those emotions play out a little bit true and again they're teenagers yeah yeah so so i i I suppose you know there's there's some i mean okay on the one hand they're teenagers on the other hand they're fictional and none of this actually needed to happen but (laughs) i'm trying to be fair here okay yeah yeah. Uh, let's move on to 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 the other, thankfully briefer, in some ways, uh, love triangle among 
the uh, younger children. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, the, the exceedingly unfortunate jealousy, apparently, uh, um, that Eleven has because she sees uh, Mad Max with Mike precisely once. Yeah. Yeah, I really didn't care for that at all. Especially because Will doesn't like Max. Not Will, I'm sorry. Mike doesn't like Max. Like, he doesn't like her. He's very, he's super suspicious of her. He's the last member of the party to, to crack. And he actually... I don't think he, he even ever really fully cracks. And it just... It, it, rings, it rings a little false. And it's just not necessary. Like, if they didn't want to think up something good for the dynamic between Eleven and Max, then fucking don't do anything at all. I would have preferred zero interaction instead of this super forced jealousy thing. Because, yeah, like you said, it's one second... And then, um, you know, she scoots the skateboard out from under Max's feet, which is a nice callback to the way she used her powers a lot in the first season. But Mike doesn't like Max. And also Mike calls for her on the radio every night. Who does Mike like, the Levin? It's you. Like, that's just, it's very forced. So I think it's like the one false note in the whole story. It's extremely unfortunate. Yeah. Again, to be fair, it's not really concentrated on at all. There's the one moment later on when everyone gets together and Max tries to introduce herself and Eleven kind of shrugs her off and goes to further the main storyline. But yeah. other otherwise, it's not really harped on, thankfully. Thank God, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you say, she she hears him calling to her. Uh, we, we see one scene, there's the implication that she hears him all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that felt, that felt real. Yeah. So, like, if you're, if you're doing that every day, then I would not worry about this one second thing. It just, it's just, ugh, it's not, it's not needed. And, like, we know that they like each other. Like, it, sometimes they, sometimes jealousy is a shortcut in a story to make a character realize that they like somebody else. We already knew that shit. They knew that before. Yeah. Which is, yeah. It doesn't, doesn't have a point other than I don't like it. And I, I understand that it's another way of emphasizing Eleven's abandonment fears. Yeah. But seriously. Oh, yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah. And that, that makes me want to just briefly shout out something that isn't a love triangle, which is that Hopper is capable of being legit friendly towards Joyce. And they are friends. And Joyce has her actual other relationship. And it is not a love triangle, so there. <laughs> no, no, it, no, it isn't. And I, I, I really hope, I really hope that there isn't another fucking love triangle in the all thing in the future. You hear that, Hollywood? You can do it without a love triangle. Good, good lord. Yes, uh, men and women can be friends. New studies yes. show. Oh my god, they really can, though. Yeah, uh, anytime that's on screen, I'm, I'm into it. Should we should we talk a little bit about Bob? Is now a good time to talk about him? Yes, let's talk about Bob Newby, the superhero. Yeah. Oh, I love him so much. And I like that it's Sean Astin. Uh, wonderful. Was he in the Goonies? He was, yes. right? Yes, he was. So that's beautiful and life makes sense completely. Well, I, I, I think that's why... You know? I, I think that's why during... 
uh, the awesome sequence where he finally became useful to the main plot when he was figuring out the uh, map of the vines and everything. I think that's why yeah. they threw in the line about, is this a treasure map? Nice. Oh, I think you're probably right. So it's a nice Easter egg right in there. And I he, I got strong Jurassic Park vibes from his scene with uh, flipping the breakers and getting into the into the computer because it's uh, like what they're doing in the final act of Jurassic Park, which is one of my favorite films of all time. I like how sweet he is with Joyce. I like how he is very earnestly considers himself to be a lucky man, even though she's kind of a social pariah in their town because of all the drama with Will. He just does, He's completely unflapped. And he's just genuinely sweet to her, wants to work on his relationship with the children, like, completely understands that when you date a mother, you date the family. So he's, he's a very sweet, respectful, genuine guy, um, and I'm not bored by him. And I like how much she likes him. And then I was very distressed by what happened to him, but he was... He certainly was a hero. Yeah, and I was never quite sure of his intentions. Partly because if you introduce a character who, in one of his first appearances, wants to take one of the protagonists away from the action, uh, mm. that gets a little suspicious. Like, when, when he starts talking about moving the family out of Indiana, moving to, I think it was Boston. Or um, Maine, maybe, yeah. And Somewhere. And I, I, I have also been reading... Uh, the reviews written by a, a, a friend of mine, uh, Joseph Lee, writing at 411mania.com, has been doing episode-by-episode episode, uh, reviews uh, for this season, and he has was utterly convinced that Bob was evil. That he, <laughs> that he was a spy, or he was, like... I don't think he actually speculated that he was, like, a secret demogorgon or something, but... That that he might have been working for the lab or, or whatever it was that his intentions were not positive, and I I think I think that might have been a little cliche if he had turned out to be evil also, uh, especially yeah. if Doctor Paul Reiser had also turned out to be evil. I mean, how much can you do? Uh, so, sometimes it's actually a more interesting decision to make someone actually what they seem. Yeah. Even even though he does unwittingly, it turns out, give uh, Will the advice to try to stand up to the Mind Flayer, uh, which then results in him being possessed. I think that actually might have been part of where the story was coming from, because at that point, he's not... I don't. He, he doesn't know how supernatural all the shit going down with Will actually is. Mm. Um, I think he's aware that Will has a tough time in school. They call him zombie boy and stuff, and that, that, that advice is really solid when it comes to being bullied at school. Um, it completely falls down if you're... if there's, like, a... a, a <laughs> a town-sized fucking supernatural monster that can uh, take you over via your mucous membranes. Um, yeah, it, it turns out that that's just another example of a character not knowing what genre they're in. Right, and, and, and it's like a piece of bad luck that he would choose to give this bad advice, but then it, it to me, the, the, other, the other component of that is that it shows Will's approval of Bob, like Will is willing to listen to Bob and sort of accept Bob as someone who's going to be around because he's seeing, he's seeing his mom 
to me that's that's lovely because why would will have any reason to trust anyone who comes near their family so just by will trying to to do the advice like shows how how strong the relationship between will and bob was getting before this thing came and disturbed it yeah as opposed to jonathan and bob who were not bonding at all yeah but it's more like that guy you know like i think it's just kind of wondering what's in it for him or like or maybe more accurately what's in it for her and just maybe having a, a teenage boy's extra layer of skepticism but not outright disrespect like John, jonathan's a really respectful guy <laughs> yeah but but yeah once bob actually started to get integrated into the plot line a little more i think his character really blossomed um in 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 some of the uh behind the scenes extra materials and such they talk about how once they cast Sean Astin in that role they liked him so much and they liked him in the role so much that they kept like expanding the role like at one hey. at, like at one point he was supposed to die like several episodes earlier uh oh. and and then they kept they kept moving it back and back and back and back until uh, he wound up dying, I think, the penultimate episode? Yes, penultimate episode. <laughs> Just because, like, they found they liked him so much and they liked the way he, he was playing the character so much. So I think the, the sequence where he figures out the Will's map is, is very, very good for him. And then when they actually get into the, uh, the, the underground vine cave network and he figures out that that's where they are i i think that energy was was really good and as 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 a certified dork i kind of appreciate the the scene where hopper asks him to teach him basic and he says oh should i throw in french while i'm at it do you understand any of this yeah that was awesome and uh, also like the the boys eulogy or eulogize him by saying he was the founder of the AV club at their school, which is just fucking perfect. <laughs> yes. It's very, very good. It's, and I was so ups- I was so upset to lose him. That was like a really great classic cinema moment. The um, dropping of the broom, and it's like set in slow motion, and it really is the the dropping of the um, you know the executioner's axe. Because he was he was so close, and then I always appreciate in a fantastical story where there's a lot of action, um, if something like comes and maims and injures you, um, when people like sort of weakly limp into the next scene and like everything is actually fine, um, that it bugs me because it's so far from reality. So like th- those things are so dangerous, and yeah, like if they jump on you, you you have like maybe you have maybe ten seconds and. I, I wouldn't expect him to live from from that, and so I'm kind of glad from a logical perspective that he can't just survive being attacked that way. Yeah, I, I suppose it kind of fails the believability test uh, as much as anything in the show. Right. But, uh, when, when Hopper and Eleven were uh, walking through the building in the season finale, I was kind of expecting them to come upon Bob kind of weakly crawling oh, yes. when, when they found uh, Paul Reiser instead. Oh, interesting. See, I thought it must I thought it must have been Dr. Owens. Yeah, see, see, allegedly they, called 
Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they saw the trail of blood in, in the stairwell and whatever, and I immediately thought, okay, they didn't have a scene where they entered the building and immediately saw Bob's corpse. <laughs> right. Right. Although I suppose we're just—I I suppose we're just meant to believe the demo dogs just ate him. They might have. They seemed hungry. Yeah. Oh, and it's just—it's just so horrible. And Hopper having to lever Joyce out of there is so horrible, and he has to yell in her face that he's gone mm-hmm. to get her to move. That's all very realistic. Like it's not overdone, is what I'm trying to say. Like. He's very good at crisis management. Like we we see this in season one too, as well. When they finally do find Will in the upside down school, where he's been you know concealed away for later, he's basically in the pantry for the fucking monster for them for him to eat later, and that's when we get all the flashbacks about the death of Sarah when he's like trying to give uh, CPR to Will. like it's just, he's he's really good in a crisis. And since he's a cop, like I would kind of expect him to be, but it's just. He re- he really shines, and it's not it's not overdone at all. Since we were talking about Bob Newby, the superhero, let's mm-hmm. talk about the uh, whole Byers family that he's uh, involved in uh, with Will mm-hmm. and Joyce, and her continued journey in trying to figure out what's going on with her boy. Yeah. Um, oh my god, I really love her. I, again, the change in emphasis on this season meant that I don't think there was quite as much for her to do directly, but she was still kind of the heart at the, at the center of it. You know, the, the, as as just a, a good, earnest person trying to figure out how to get through all of this. And she just wants it to be over. I like Winona Ryder's Joyce very much. It, it took me a second to warm up to her when we meet her in season one, episode one. Um, but I was already I was already a fan by the end of the first season, and I just like that she's never in denial about the situation, no matter how insane it gets. She's she's right in it all the time. Um, she doesn't waste any time thinking it's not as bad as whatever that it couldn't be what it seems to be. She's just, she just jumps right in. Because she is, she's basically following Will anywhere, which is what I think any mother would do. But especially a str- like, I'm very impressed by it. She believes what her children are doing and saying. And the other like sort of motif around Joyce and Will that I've enjoyed is the thing with the uh, with the crayons. There's like a little moment where we're remembering Will before he disappeared in the first season, where he's using his little crayons to make the the green the green fireballs that look like cabbages yes yeah so there's that, that little moment that we get to see what they were like together at home before we're now looking for him and we don't really get much from will in the first season turns out will is an extraordinary actor what's the actor's name i forget uh, no so good though yeah he's he's really great and all the kids are great but he's really great yeah, so there's the, the thing with the crowns in the first season, and then when she's trying to figure out what the fuck's going on with Will, they try speech a couple times, and then she's like, oh, what if you didn't have to talk? And as soon as she throws the crayons at him, you know, he just compulsively, page after page, and, like, that's the real Will frantically trying to get a message out even though he 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 loses more and more brain uh to the monster basically every every minute that he's possessed like whatever's left uh, of will is 
she reached it with the crayons, which is great. And then when they're interrogating Will in his role as the spy of the Mind Flayer, and they have him tied up with bright lights on so that the Mind Flayer can't figure out where, where they are. She tells him, and she's trying to get him to 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 be there, see if Will is actually still in there at all, or if he really is only a shell for the monster. Uh, she starts t- telling uh, this big story about the crayons, which uh, made me cry because I'm a mom. But mm-hmm. um, the story about the rainbow spaceship and how proud she was. But I just I like that because like as a mom, you figure out some things that your kids like, and. When, when when you're so emotionally fraught, you would hang on to the like the, the the couple facts that you know for sure, and she knows she knows about will and crayons, and she will rest on that and use that to seek the truth. And I, I just like how that works in the story. I am sure that there were significant mom feels around several points in this season when mm-hmm. when everyone was telling their incredibly emotional stories about him during that interrogation scene and then when they were torturing the mind flayer out of him at the end and oh. and Winona Ryder had some acting to do uh watching yeah, all she... of, watching all of this happen to her boy yeah the balance of rage and concern was really nice yeah and and like you say uh, uh Noah Schnapp as as Will got so much more to do this year and yeah. that was one of the things uh, when we talked about this on the podcast last year that I that I said uh, we would have to see how the actor did when he wasn't just missing for the whole season. And it turns out, yeah, he's he's good too. Oh, he's, he's so good. Um, he's so good in sort in sort of this double role as the kind of normal will and the possessed will just the the mind flare speaking on its own and and all of these different levels that he had to reach he definitely got a lot more to do and and, and he definitely was successful oh he's just he's he's really really good as well i just love him i love him because joyce loves him yes um, there's something there's something about it it's very powerful they have they have amazing chemistry. Actually, the Byers family together is very believable. Into them very much, including Jonathan. Yeah. Also, of course, it's required that once a season they have to trash their house. Yeah, <laughs> the poor the poor Byers house. That's where one of my favorite Easter eggs ever comes out is in episode nine. Um, they're cleaning out the shed so that they can put, like, put paper all over it and lights and hide hide where they are from Will slash the Mind Flayer. And one of the things that Steve tosses aside is the huge bowl, ball of Christmas lights. Oh, I didn't catch that. It's so great. It's like it's only on screen for one second, but I I was just so delighted I couldn't even deal with it. I was squealing. It's just so good. Uh, all right. Uh, since we were talking about Will, let's move on to the other children. Okay. Uh, as, as we start to uh, wrap up our whole our whole character journey. Um, yes. Again, the the amount that they had to do kind of shifted. Um, last season was about Mike. Uh, to an extent, a lot more than this season was. And so that actor had a little less to do, but he still turned out to be important, obviously. Um, As an ensemble show, I mean, everyone kind of sorted into their right place by the end. And that 
is a dynamic that I really, really love in ensemble shows, uh, especially serialized shows like this, where over the course of the season, people get separated, they get put in, in weird and interesting combinations, and then for like the final push at the end of the season, they have to all come together and sort into the right combinations uh, for the roles that they will have in the end game of the story. And they did it so well in the first season, and they did it just as well this year, I think. It was so satisfying when everyone finally got together and finally started sharing their information and believing each other. Uh, especially when uh, Dustin would opine about the D&D characters and Hopper would yeah. be there kind of rolling his eyes and then <laughs> um, I forget which one of the kids uh, um, was, was explaining that no, we don't actually think this is this D&D character it's a metaphor, analogy okay, it's an analogy <laughs> yeah I forget which one it is also and, and, and uh, Dustin keeps getting all distracted trying to get everyone to use the term demo dogs <laughs> yes <laughs> you can't make demo dogs happen it's so funny yeah sorry <laughs> yeah the the kids are the kids are wonderful i'm so into them and they're um they're they're tiny hyper developed ethics are great i appreciated how uh, the expanded budget for season two means that dustin and lucas have families now Yes, that was delightful. I appreciated that a lot. Uh, Lucas's sister, especially, oh, and- was mm-hmm. fantastic. Yeah, and I was into Dustin's mom, too. Like, I feel like she's exactly the kind of mom who would produce a child like Dustin. Yes. Who and- I just unreasonably adore. Uh, and, and the cat, rest in peace, Muse. Gone but not forgotten. Yeah, right? Uh, oh, and I, I like the, I like the whole fake phone call shit to get his mom to leave the house was brilliant. That tiny actor, Gaden Matarazzo, is so funny. Yes, he has great timing. Uh, I have a legit quandary because my roommate has not watched this season yet, and I don't know whether to like warn him that the cat doesn't make it. Oh no! Yeah, that was a little gruesome. Yeah, I'm 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 not sure. I'm not sure if that if that might be required, but um I I've, I've been scrupulously avoiding spoilers regardless. Yeah. Oh, here's a question since we were just talking about Dustin, lover of animals who turfs his tortoise out of the aquarium in order to save Dart. Yeah, what happened to the tortoise? Um, I I was kind of waiting f- to see that Dart ate that too. Oh shit. Dart probably did eat the tortoise. R.I.P. Yertle. Yes. Gone and forgotten. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I just... Little Dustin... Okay, first of all, is the one in the trash can... Did Will spit that up? There's a brief suggestion that it might have been the same situation. Or is it just that the the entire water table in Hawkins is fucked up from the Demogorgon? It's not necessarily the same. I am not sure... Because actually, never mind. It grows so fast. There's no way. I was just, I was just gonna say, I was just gonna say. There's that implication when Will has his kind of flashback to coughing one up at the end of the first season. But Mm -hmm. also, if that's the case, I do not understand the biological development of this species. Right. Yeah. So it's probably not. Never mind. I mean, I just, I like, I like how it's so disgusting, and we all know 
what it probably is instantly. But Dustin is such a fucking science nerd. Um, and he, you know, he's, he's not going to not like it only just because it's ugly. Like he's not going to let a tiny matter, like it's profound repulsive nature, keep him from liking it or trying to take care of it, which is just the cutest thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> turns out it's quite destructive that he doesn't kill, kill it on sight. Um, yeah. but he, and he won't let them kill him. And he's the way he smuggles the bigger dart back out of the school. Like it, I'm like, oh shit, and and I like how it forces a conflict between the boys, because there's like a light, there's a light conflict around the handling of Max that is actually not romantically motivated. It's because she's an outsider, which I appreciated them staying with that problem as long as possible. That it's that it's outsider versus who has a crush on her and why. And uh, Lucas and Dustin don't actually fight over her. Like Dustin takes a step a step back when he sees that Max had reached for Lucas's hand when the when the Demogorgon dogs sorry demo dogs justin dustin when they were uh when they were coming like he, he kind of like withdraws like sort of, sort of a knights of the round table like you know you you have a claim here kind of thing but he just he just they don't they don't fight about that which i appreciate they fight they fight instead about lies that were told around the concealment of dart so that, that's like a that's like a deep conflict to have like you broke the rules you lied to me like this is it's a serious little conflict that they're they get into yeah, it, it it was it was a very good way to use all all of them. I thought to have something yeah. that rises out of the plot without feeling arbitrary. Right, right. Uh, because of Dustin being such an animal lover, and and yeah, uh, it it was just it was all so so cute and paid off at the end with um with Dart momentarily letting them by. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's just just such a such a cute moment. That was great. Since you mentioned her, let's let's move on to Max and her whole viscerally uncomfortable family. Oh yeah, uh huh. Her her viscerally uncomfortable, broken, abusive family. Yeah, they're very show. They're very show don't tell on Stranger Things, which I for the fourth or fifth time I I appreciate so much. But yeah, like they, there's a little mystery about how Max and Billy know each other, and they don't, they don't just lay it all out like a Sweet Valley High story. Instead, we just get, we get it in drips and drabs and pacing decisions that are that are good. Getting the full story of why Billy is so shit, it does make me feel more complicatedly about his villainy. But he's still a villain. The f- the first season had uh, the casts of bullies at both age groups and mm-hmm. so they, they needed another human villain uh, for yeah. our heroes although by the end of the season like when their parents came in and the first thing the father did was drop the F word the one I don't like yeah. <laughs> I, I, I started wondering if they were going to try to pull a move like with Steve Harrington at the end of last season where he gets some sort of change of heart and like a last minute yeah. redemption. And then instead of that, he started hitting on Mrs. Wheeler, which yeah. is just the most absurd thing. No, that that was scary. It was scary that he read that that would be so effective so easily. A little, little sociopathy there. Um, yeah, a little Being bit. able to read something like that and produce that effect. Oh, 
And and uh, he really throws Steve a, a fuck of a beating. That was upsetting. It really was. Yes. Yeah. Oh, Billy. Again. But I also like how perfectly trash 80s he was. Like, he was perfect. That hair was perfect. His jeans were perfect. His stupid jewelry was perfect. He was good. And that that actor is also fine. I hate his guts, but he did the job. <laughs> yeah, you hate his guts really when you're well. supposed to. Yeah. And he was terrifying. He was just as terrifying as the Demogorgon, which I think was the point of him, like you say. Yeah, it, it, exactly. He He's the... Uh... <laughs> he, he he's the he's the dehumanizing force of teen bullying. So awful. He's the James Spader. <laughs> like it would have been James Spader if it was actually in the eighties. Oh, just, that'd be amazing! I would totally watch that. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm just glad they didn't work him into a love triangle. <laughs> yes, God. Yeah. Any favorite moments that remain to be shouted out by you? Well. I mentioned it briefly before the um, reunion that that everyone had at the uh, buyer's house when Eleven showed up to save everyone, and mm. everyone immediately uh, fell back into their character dynamics, including Joyce just caring for her. Yeah, uh, which is is always awesome. One other, I guess I I can call it a favorite moment, although it was super upsetting, was um. Terry, yes. Um, what they did to Terry is inhuman. Like we we knew how shit Doctor Brenner was, and he's even shittier. Watching watching that happen was super upsetting. Yeah, and and knowing that she had a lot of the same motivations that Joyce has had all this time, and just trying to do right by her child. Yes, and, what and, a great point, yes. And, and just being completely overwhelmed and victimized. Mm-hmm. Oh, I guess it's just, it, it's another piece of seasoning in the rich, rich stew of Stranger Things. There's so many emotions. Yes. Uh, God, it's such a, such a solid piece of entertainment, and I just, I'm really excited to rewatch it later. I didn't, and, and actually, interestingly enough, for once, I didn't feel like I had to rewatch season one to get ready for season two because I remembered so much from season one because it's so vivid, so moving, so poignant. Like, you know what I'm saying? I was I was well situated, and I remembered tons of stuff from the first season, even though I have not seen it since then. There are a lot of images that that stay with you. Um, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm very much about big iconic images in in TV yeah. shows. And the way that yeah. those moments kind of stick with you, and a lot of the ones from season one did. Do you want to mention the Ghostbusters stuff really quickly? Oh, it's so great! Because <laughs> in that episode, they got to use the song in the closing credits. Hell yes! Yeah, Love that song. Because, of course, it's 1984, so. <laughs> I think. Yeah, it was perfect. <laughs> and, the, and then uh, the, the whole conversation about who has to be Winston kind of lampshades the fact that it's been 30 years and you can still only have one black person on the team in media, which is, uh, Oh my God. Right. Yeah. Meta. Uh, a, a little, a, a little meta, a little, a, a little bit uncomfortable, but fun. Yeah, it was fun. Oh my God. Um, of Wonderful. course, of course, season two is 1984, which means it's Ghostbusters. Season three is going to be 1985, which means Back to the Future. Hell yeah, they're ready. 
Although I honestly think I honestly think it might be done. I really do. I guess we're going back to where we where we began. I don't know. They like, can tell stories in this universe forever, but I think they're in a good spot to stop, and I wonder if they will. I I think they are probably going to go on for a, at least a couple more seasons. Uh, do, 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 do. The Duffer Brothers have confirmed that a third and fourth season are in the pipeline. The producer has teased a fifth. Oh, okay. Never mind. I'm the wrongest one. I mean, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see when that happens, and, and we'll see what uh, comes of that. But whenever that does come, of course, we will be back here on the old podcast to break For it down. Real. Count on it. Uh, as always, Alana, thank you so much for being here tonight. My pleasure. I, I love the old hour spectacular, especially when we go pop culture. Yes. Um, I I think we could probably call our shot. Uh, you'll be back here this coming December for another Star Wars show. Yes. Sorry, I can't even say it. I'm too excited. <laughs> <laughs> I started to melt. <laughs> oh. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. So. Yeah, uh, it's a date. Update, Mr. Bunny Bun. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, is there anything that you would like to uh, throw our listeners at? Um, any uh, other podcasts or anywhere you would like to send people on the internet? Well, what I've been watching lately uh, and would highly highly recommend is the spinoff from Breaking Bad called Better Call Saul. Um, the first two seasons are up on Netflix and I'm just about caught up on the second season and it is just as rich, dynamic, fascinating, dark, funny, everything you'd want for that character that came out of that show, Saul, Saul Goodman. Um, it's, it's wonderful. It includes one of the best pieces of backstory or pieces of character background I've ever seen that just punched me in the gut and was amazing. So yeah, Better Call Saul, recommend it. And, and even... I think even if you were not a Breaking Bad person or haven't seen it or were maybe not a fan, you maybe should still try this one because it stands very well on its own. Okay, that that's interesting because I watched, I think, the first two and a half seasons of Breaking Bad and then decided it wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, inter- that's interesting to hear about it uh, separate from Breaking Bad. I haven't heard anyone mention that before. Yeah, I think it works even without it. It, it. it certainly adds shades to Breaking Bad to know more about these particular characters, but they have their own shit in this story. It's great. Interesting. All right. You mentioned that uh, there was another podcast that you were on recently. Do you want to plug that? Oh, sure. Yeah. Every once in a while, I am a guest on um, D. Ray Brinson's Stay Woke podcast, which is for sure up on Apple and uh, you can find it at the Stay Woke. The Stay Woke podcast also has a Facebook page, and their focus uh, is also sports and pop culture. But they tend to focus more on football uh, for athletics, although not not exclusively, and basketball as well. And then they do hit pop culture things, and they also hit some uh, some political content. So I've I've appeared on MCU and comic book content shows, and I've also appeared on feminism, um, racism, and uh, other politically minded uh shows so yeah check that out if you like to hear me with some of my other friends besides glenn (laughs) (laughs) awesome and if anyone out there would like to find me on the internet i am on twitter and tumblr at glenny bun and on facebook under my name uh you can leave a comment uh we have comments now on the place to be nation.com 
You can leave a comment on the post for this show. You can leave a comment on the Place to Be Nation Facebook page. Uh, get in touch with us. You know, we'd like we'd like to hear what what you think. You fine fine folks who've been with us so far. Uh, thank you again, Alana, for being here. Thank you, listeners, for being with us. We will see you next time.